It's very nice to be here. I, having sat through the lecture this morning, I can now describe the format we'll be employing is speech. Uh, we're in conversation, which is widely supported by most browsers, but is heavily lossy and will uh, not stand up uh, robustly to the passage of time. So catch it while you can. Uh, and it's a oh, great I thought we were being podcasts. So well, that's it has been done. <laughs> It'll be a different. It'll be an interpretation. They won't. The colours will be wrong. I've learned that too. But it's it's a real pleasure to be in conversation with Jonathan Bate, who many or most of you will know as uh, the Provost of Worcester College now and Professor of English here in Oxford, but uh, has a, a panoply of other roles uh, through time in terms of uh, his scholarly and research work, but also his work with the British Academy as the Vice President for the Humanities. So we've uh, very much got the horse's mouth to talk about the humanities and its interface with its various publics, both within the institution and out with, because where I'd like to start, I think, is in talking about your kind of, uh, I suppose, avant-garde research career, in that you've always been more than one thing. I mean, it, the, if you don't know Jonathan's work, mainly he is, uh, for me, the author of my favourite book on Shakespeare, which is Shakespeare and Ovid, but has since then published works which have been described in different ways as more public-facing or more popular in terms of the genius of Shakespeare and subsequent things. But he also has a, 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 which was very rare at the time, and is still, I think, fairly rare, an alternative academic uh, research field, which is romanticism and also eco-criticism. So, you know, someone who does three things. I mean, was that always in your mind as a weird thing to be doing? And did you do it deliberately, or were you just following your nose in terms of research interest? Well, I, th I think, if, I mean, for me, the, the, the starting point of my... Sort of professional career um, was Shakespeare. I mean, I, I think the specific were two specific starting points. One was playing Macbeth at the age of fifteen, and the other was seeing a quite extraordinary um, small-scale RSC production um, of King Lear when I was seventeen, uh, which was directed by a, a remarkable director called Buzz Goodbody, who um, actually um, committed suicide shortly after that. And it was part of a RSC project called Theatre Go Round of doing kind of stripped-down studio-style. Shakespeare productions in fairly small spaces, particularly aimed at school audiences. And the, the experience of sort of inhabiting a Shakespearean part and then witnessing an extraordinary production made me convinced that I wanted to devote my professional life to Shakespeare. I was never really a, a, a very good actor. So the, the only options really were being either some kind of teacher of Shakespeare um, or some kind of director. Um, and, You're uh, still not really decided. I'm still not really decided precisely. Because <laughs> you do both. Because yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then as a, um, in when I finished as, as as an undergraduate, and I spent more time doing the directing than the academic work, but in the end took the sort of safe or perhaps cowardly option that if you were reasonably good and worked reasonably hard, I thought you're going to make it in the academic world. Whereas in the theatre world. It, whether you make it or not is that you, I mean, obviously you've got to have the talent, but it's also a complete lottery as to, to where you're going. Um, but I always wanted to keep an interest in theatre. Uh, I mean, the thing about Shakespeare, obviously, is you know, Shakespeare wrote for a popular medium, <coughs> wrote to be performed, um, and even when he wrote for publication, he, he, he was writing for as big an audience as possible. So for me, it never made sense to think about Shakespeare solely in terms of a, of a strictly academic um, audience, that getting, getting to know Shakespeare getting, um, meant thinking about ways of reaching a wide public. Um, they, and then the other sort of formative influence on that was 
in my final undergraduate year, um, I took a course um, on Shakespeare and Romanticism, um, which was a, a special option um, taught that year at, at Cambridge for the first time. Um, and I read William Hazlitt, who, who I'd never read before. And Hazlitt seemed to me then, and still seems to me now, the, the finest critic and prose writer in the English language. And the thing about Hazlitt is, again, he was always writing for many different audiences. He wrote theatre reviews, he wrote journalism, he was engaged in politics. I mean, he was a model of what we would now call a public intellectual. Um, it then became an obvious thing to, to, to pursue that undergraduate special course into a doctorate, which meant I did a doctorate on Shakespeare and Romanticism. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I had the two, um, the, the, the two sort of strings to my bow which in, at that historical moment was actually quite timely because my, my prediction that if you were reasonably good and worked reasonably hard, you would make it in academia was somewhat confounded by the cuts of 1981. Mm. Uh, and in fact, a huge number of extremely talented graduate students in my generation, um, if you're a little bit younger than me, but not, not, not so young as not to think. remember mm. that kind of lost generation. Um, and, but then the fact that I had two fields of specialism meant that there were two kinds of job I could apply for, which yeah. meant I was able to get a job. And, um, uh, but still, I was always thinking about Shakespeare in terms of, 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 of performance and of audiences. And my, my doctoral work on Shakespeare and the Romantic period developed into, into the work on Shakespeare and popular culture in the period. I did a lot of work, for instance, on the uh, allusions to Shakespeare in caricatures. Mm -hmm. Um, thinking about ways in which Shakespeare um, became part of the currency of cultural, social and political life in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so again, there was that, that broader canvas. Then the, the other sort of aspect that linked in, I, I suppose, was the thinking back to the beginnings of my interest in Wordsworth. Um, that was very much bound up with a, a kind of personal uh, history of fell walking and uh, uh, the Lake District being a place that was very, very important to me. And then along the way through the, the Wordsworth Summer Conferences, which, which was a very interesting, we were sort of talking about impact. The, the Wordsworth Summer Conference was set up by Richard Wordsworth, who was a former actor, who was William Wordsworth's great-grandson. And the, 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 the conference was designed to be for both academics, but also the general poetry-loving public. And you'd have lectures and seminars in the morning and hikes in the afternoon. So as a, as a tutor, you, you had to be as good with an ordnance survey map as you, you were with a textual variation in the prelude. But it was an extraordinary conference. It lasted for two weeks. And you would literally have, you know, Geoffrey Hartman, um, Thomas McFarland, um, I mean, all, all the great romanticists, all the textual editors who were doing that extraordinary Cornell Wordsworth edition, they were there. Because, of course, Wordsworth... It's an extraordinary case where the manuscripts are still there in the library at Dove Cottage. But also, um, you know, poetry enthusiasts, Lake District enthusiasts. And, and it was really that, that history that began to get me in, interested in thinking about Wordsworth's place in the history of the Lake District and the fact that both the National Trust and the very idea of a national park were things that emerged because of Wordsworth. So I wrote that book, Romantic Ecology, Wordsworth and the Environmental Tradition, arguing for his importance in those histories. And beginning, I think, by um, quoting um, Auden's famous line in his Elegy on the Death of Yeats, where he says, poetry makes nothing happen. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, well, no, in the case of Wordsworth, poetry made a lot of things happen. It made things happen um, in terms of changes in attitude to landscape, in terms of patterns of tree planting, patterns of erosion, uh, patterns of holiday making, tourism, um, and ultimately, you know, much of the, the modern conservation movement and indeed aspects of the modern leisure industry can be traced back to Wordsworth. Hmm. So it was a long answer. It's a good one. <laughs> Keep them all that length and we'll be fine. I think one of the things which we should talk about is your work with the theatre. I mean, you touched upon that. But before that, I mean, let's, let's stay within the kind of academia as traditionally uh, described. And I mean, did, did you make a conscious decision that having written Ovid and Shakespeare, open brackets, the best book on Shakespeare ever written, then the next book would be for a different audience. I mean, was the genius of Shakespeare... I mean, the very title itself was something which struck reviewers at the time as being a gesture towards the popular. Yeah. And we hadn't yeah. been told we had to be impactful no, at that no. point. So it was, a, it was clearly something that was yeah. avant-garde again. It, it, and it, well, it is, it's very interesting, actually, because it wasn't, it wasn't intended at all. What happened was, after the Ovid book, um, partly because of the Ovid book, I was asked by the great um, textual scholar Richard Proudfoot if I'd like to edit Titus Andronicus for the third series of the Arden Shakespeare. The Arden Shakespeare is the sort of authoritative <coughs> scholarly edition of Shakespeare. And uh, completing it, it it's, it's, it's like what they say about painting the railway bridge in your native city, your, your current city, um, that once you finish it, you start again. So the first series of the Arden Shakespeare began around about 1900. And before it was even finished, a second series was commissioned around about the 1950s. And in the early 1990s, it was clear that various developments in Shakespearean textual theory meant that the Arden Shakespeare was going to have to be redone. And I was asked to do Titus Andronicus, which is the Shakespeare play that actually has a copy of Ovid on stage. So it was very much up my street. Um, so I did that. And um, it was in the first batch of the, the third Arden series. Um, and the Times Literary Supplement published um, a, an extract from um, the introduction um, as a way of sort of, 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 sort of la launching the series. And a, a literary agent called David Godwin read that um, and thought, hmm, there hasn't been a popular book on Shakespeare for a long time. The way this piece is written, this might be the person to write it. So he, he called me up and said, had I ever thought of writing for a, a more general audience? And the answer to that was no, until he made that call. Um, uh, but what, what was interesting about the book was, I mean, he had no trouble selling it to, to Picador, but he actually, he actually failed to sell it in New York. It, it, was, it was, in fact, published by Oxford University Press in New York. So in, in America, it was, it was published as an academic monograph. Um, because at that point, nobody in America thought there was a market for a popular book on Shakespeare. A year or two later, Harold Bloom published uh, a book, which I would say is much less good than mine, uh, Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, um, you know, which, which literally sold 100,000 copies in hardback. Um, and so I, I did, in fact, when I, I wrote it, 10 years after Genius of Shakespeare came out, there was a reissue and I wrote an afterword about what had changed in the last 10 years. And I did sort of reflect on why that was. And actually, I thought there was a rather simple answer to the question, which was the, the movie Shakespeare in Love. Mm -hmm. Um, that that was, I, I thought, what, well, it was Harold Bloom's name, of course, and the fact that he was American, but what, what was the main thing that was different about the public perception of Shakespeare between 95, 96, when that book was being sold, and 98, 99, when, when Bloom's came out? It was, it was Shakespeare in Love, uh, 
cleaning up at the box office and, and the Oscars. And I think Shakespeare in Love is a very good film. I mean, I, th- I think in its, its kind of witty conceit of the idea that the, the professional world of Shakespeare's theatre, where, you know, the money man's in charge, the writer's on a deadline, um, all those sort of in-jokes, uh, as the idea that it is a world like Hollywood. I mean, that, that kind of struck a chord. Um, and it did begin to produce this sort of image of, as it were, Shakespeare as the professional writer, Shakespeare as, as the businessman. I mean, my title, The Genius of Shakespeare, was, was of course, in some senses intended to have big quotation marks mm. around the word genius, in that one of the things the book was about was the history of the idea of Shakespeare as genius. And indeed, it argued that our modern conception of genius in relation to extreme artistic creativity was something that was invented in the 18th century, primarily as a way of accounting for Shakespeare's achievement. Mm. Did you find you were writing differently? What's the relationship between research and that book? Is it it a research Mm. book? Are you reporting Mm. on findings in the sense that grants want you to do? Or were you thinking aloud for an audience? You see, I I really... get quite annoyed at the idea that um, a quotes popular book um, and a, a research book are are different things that I, th- I, I there, there is as much original research in that book as in any of the three or four academic monographs that that, that I've written um, one tends to present the um, the kind of supporting and footnoted evidence in a lighter way in those books, but I, and it, and obviously, if you're ranging widely, that there will be moments where you 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 simplify, where a fine distinction that if you were writing a a twenty page journal article on one particular detail, where you would really drill down um, and make those fine distinctions, that that one does have to avoid. Um, but I I. I, you know, I very much disagree with um, the, uh, the, the 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 idea that you can't do original research in that mm-hmm. format within within the disciplines. Um, but I think particularly within within the discipline of English. Um, uh, I was going to ask about that, but I, I suddenly but, lost confidence in that notion as I sort of explored it. That I mean, on the face of it, it seems that English is not that kind of one goes to an archive necessarily and finds something new and then writes up a report about it. It's about thought articulated in a particular way. But then I guess history is as well. I mean, it's a yeah. lot of disciplines are discursive, so that division between original mm. research and mm. popularising is, is a false dichotomy. Well, I, I think it is. I mean, how I think, you write. Yeah. Um, and also I, the it, titles that grab people. I mean, Shakespeare in Love yeah. was such a striking title. I mean, yes. you, you lose sense of just... Yeah. What a weird thing that was when it first appeared. Yes. Shakespeare in love. So the genius of Shakespeare did something like that. In yeah. That you thought, oh goodness, yeah. Yeah, people don't, you don't encounter that on the street very often. Yeah. Like Ang Lee's The Incredible Hulk. I remember being very amused by that when it first came out. Yeah. The two worlds clash in, a, yeah. in an extraordinary moment. But, but I, I, mean, I, I do think that the, a, a, a problem for the humanities in relation to I mean, all, all this discourse around public value um, and... The, the idea of reaching audiences beyond, you know, the fellow graduate student, the, the fellow professional, the conference circuit, so to speak. And I do think the problem is that the, the paradigm for how academic work and research in particular is done is that, is that of science. Mm. 
And in science, there clearly is a huge difference between the normative academic form of publication, which is the paper in the specialised journal, and the work of popularisation. I mean, the, you know, there is extraordinary work, far, far better work in popular science than in popular literary studies, cultural studies, and arguably even popular history over the last 20 years. I mean, the, the explosion of extremely good and scientifically well-informed popular science writing is, a, is a, 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 you know, a real phenomenon of modern publishing. But the fact is, um, those kinds of books can't really embody original research. Mm. Um, and I, I, so I think people, people have that paradigm in mind. If it's original research, you know, it's got to be the specialist journal article. Um, it used to be in the sciences, it was either the specialist journal article or the textbook, which again was not mm. original research. Now, in a sense, um, you know, uh, is, is, is this a further choice of the popular, um, the popular work of science? Um, but uh, but again, I, I, I you know, I, I don't see how, why, or how that 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 has to be the case. Um, and and it, certainly, if you if you think of the world of literary literary criticism, um, you know, so many of the greatest critics um, down the ages have also been creative writers. I, I don't think there is a single critic of quality or importance before Hazlitt who wasn't themselves a poet. Um, but as I say, Hazlitt wasn't an academic, he was essentially a journalist. But I mean, in the media, there, I mean, he said airily, I mean, there, there is still that interest in discovery, in something new. What, what have you done that's new? And it's, can it, I mean, how do you square the circle that literature and literary criticism are often isn't necessarily about finding Richard III in a car park or mm. a cure for something or a new yeah. molecule or a number between five and seven or whatever. But you actually have to describe something in a much more nuanced way. It's about thinking about something differently. Yes. I mean, how do you find that gulf, bridge, small gap <laughs> possible to forge? If that's not three metaphors. I, th I, know, I, 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 think, I think that is that is very difficult. I mean, it's... Uh, uh, a new interpretation um, doesn't sort of as well grab the attention of the media in the way that a new fact does. Um, the I mean, my, one of the things that I I, I mean, a, t a technique that that I've I've used in a, in a number of books aimed at a general audience is um, is actually to use relatively small new facts as a way of as, as, a, as, as a kind of way of opening up uh, larger new interpretations I mean just just um, to, to give you a couple of examples of that I mean in my sort of intellectual biography of Shakespeare called Soul of the Age um, I, I, I did find a new fact um, or a fact the significance of which hadn't really been thought through uh, which was a rather old document that identified the name of um, the Shakespeare family's solicitor, who I then established um, was at the Middle Temple, um, at, well, first at St Clement's Inn and then at the Middle Temple, and had a number of very significant connections. Um, and it then became obvious that a particular legal document that he prepared, he, he was in residence in London at the time it was prepared. It's most unlikely that um, Shakespeare's father would have gone to London because this is the time that he, Shakespeare's father was more or less in hiding from the law over his debts. It therefore followed that 
Shakespeare was in London in early 1588 um, signing a document. Um, and that, that is quite a significant fact um, in terms of Shakespeare's early career and sort of what got Shakespeare to, to London and what followed from it is a number of things to do with his connections with the legal world. Um, now I, don't, I don't think that's a huge fact, but it, it, it was a way, it, it, it meant that in, in sort of talking about that work, presenting that work, if people said, you know, what can you possibly say that is new about Shakespeare and the law or when Shakespeare went to London? Well, here's a small fact that's new, but the, the, the really interesting thing is not the small fact, but the larger implication of it. And just another example, again, just sticking with Shakespeare, not, not a fact that I found, but one that I sort of got, got thinking about. Um, there was a relatively recent discovery by a, um, a scholar from Kent called Peter Roberts who discovered um, a, um, a court list um, of uh, players of interludes to his majesty dated it's either 1607 or 1608 um, and it it had on the list the names of all Shakespeare's fellow actors um, within the king's men but his name was absent from that list um, and that rather cohered with evidence we knew already that from the surviving um, names of the actors' lists in Ben Jonson's plays. Shakespeare clearly was acting up till about 1605, but there is no evidence of Shakespeare acting after 1605. Mm. So it may well be that Shakespeare retired as an actor uh, before he retired as a writer. It may well indeed be that he, he retreated from his company to some extent earlier than people think. One of the myths about Shakespeare is that he retired to Stratford in 1611 after writing mm -hmm. The Tempest and Prospero's last speech as Shakespeare's farewell to the stage. Actually, there's, there's evidence Shakespeare's in London in 1614. He's collaborating with Fletcher on a play in 1613. So I, I took from this absence from a, a player's list a, a possible different argument about Shakespeare's career, which is not that Shakespeare retired in 1611, but that Shakespeare partially retired much before 1611 and never fully retired. He was always retiring. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that, that then leads to a different, a different mapping of, of, of his career. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, I want to ask you about MOOCs and apps in a minute, but I mean, can we broaden it out, because we've already done half of our time, and uh, early warning that there will be an opportunity for questions at the end, so if we start thinking of difficult and challenging questions for Jonathan for the last 10 minutes. But, I mean, the, the environment has shifted uh, fundamentally in terms of academic life and the way in which academia is encouraged, nay, paid to engage with institutions and publics outside now. I mean, how, how do you see the shift towards... I mean, the impact agenda is the shorthand which is being... which is used for it. I mean, it... What are the opportunities, what are the disadvantages of that, and, and how will it shape out, mm. do you think? I, I mean, I, there, there is a phenomenon among academics um, called panic or overreaction. Uh, I've often seen it in, 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 in my career, sort of institutionally, where... Um, there's a sort of, you know, a local problem in one bit of a university. In order to fix it, some kind of new discipline is introduced and imposed across the whole university. Uh, and often that leads to an enormous amount of new bureaucracy and the introduction of practices that actually aren't suitable. It, it might have been better just to do the local fix. And I do think the so-called impact agenda is a little bit like that, that, um, the, you know, the, the thing that 
is leading it is um, an, an anxiety on the part of um, civil servants and ministers within a department um, under pressure from the treasure, Treasury um, to produce evidence that they are delivering value for the taxpayers' money. Um, but what, what the impact in itself in, in the REF exercise is simply asking is that one in every ten academics should do something that might be of interest to someone other than fellow researchers. Um, but my feeling is actually one in ten and maybe even one in five academics has for a very long time been, been, been doing, doing something of interest to, mm. to people other, other than fellow researchers. Um, but of course the danger is because of the way that's been foregrounded, um, what, what may happen with future um, employment patterns is that the, as it were, nine out of ten of every appointment are going to go to people who, who have a particular gift or inclination for uh, you know, reaching this, this, this wider audience. Um, and uh, so, the, the, you know, I, I do sort of get the feel talking to people across different universities that, that an idea seems to have taken hold that everybody has to do mm. impact rather than that one in ten people have to do impact. Um, so I think that's that's the big downside of it. It's the, as I say, it's, it's university administrations going into panic mm. mode and feeling you know it's it, it's the big agenda. It's Chinese whispers, isn't it? In, in a it, way, yeah, exactly. you start off with a yeah. reasonable proposition, which yeah. is shouldn't yeah. research actually be of some interest yeah. to the people who are paying for it, and then it filters down to mm. university managers who immediately build a, yeah. a special unit and pay consultants to yes. Yeah. To do it all, and you yeah. end up spending million, paying millions of pounds yeah. in order to gain hundreds mm. or whatever. Yeah, but where there is a sort of upside to it, and where I think it's really important, indeed essential, is um, is actually not anything to do with um, you know, government funding agendas or research council requirements to put an impact box into a grant application, but rather into the fact that the extraordinary cultural changes brought about essentially by the, the, the advent of the, the internet 15 years ago um, as a mass phenomenon um, have meant that the, the whole attitude to information um, and to the cultural past um, among young people has changed with extraordinary rapidity. And, and I mean, if you look at the enrolment rates in American universities for disciplines like literature and history, I mean, the downward curve is is, is astonishing, um, and it, it's the kind of toxic combination of the uh, both the, the the internet world suggesting that all knowledge is in some sense equal, and that there's no distinction between the past and the present. Uh, that combined with the economic crisis, the credit crunch, and so forth, and the, the idea that higher education has got to be functional in terms of getting a job. Um, the, the potential effect of that on the humanities and their traditions is, I mean, I honestly think it is potentially terminal. Um, one, one of the things that I, f I think is really troubling, um, I talk about this a lot with my, my wife, who's a Jane Austen scholar, um, is that she's always being phoned um, to... to to give quotes about Jane Austen to the Daily Mail. And I'm always being phoned to give quotes about Shakespeare to the Daily Telegraph. Um, and it's, it, it's as if, just over the last decade or so, Shakespeare and Jane Austen 
have come to stand in for the whole of English literature. Mm. The, the, the mass media, the mass public, as it were. Uh, well, the, the media is leading the public to believe that there is, it's enough to have some token references to Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And everything else, you know, is consigned to the dust heap of history. Now, where, where the, the notion of really innovative scholarship, powerful narratives from the archive being made available to wide audiences, where that's really, really crucial is in keeping alive the past, the cultural traditions. And if you, if, if you look at the way, you know, that, for instance, um, you know, popular archaeology... Um, or, for, for that matter, you know, Brian Cox um, have managed to make their disciplines attractive and sexy um, to a generation who, on the one hand, are terribly anxious about their jobs, about the pragmatic consequences of education, and on the other hand, um, are being kind of bombarded with so much on YouTube that they don't need to bother um, with, you know, traditional forms of learning. Um, and I, I do think, you know, to, to, be, to, be, to be getting the humanity, you know, research in the humanities out there is, is absolutely crucial. Because if, if, it, if it doesn't happen, then, you know, a seminar like this, uh, courses like the ones we all teach in 50 years' time are, are, are going to be peopled by virtually nobody. That's an optimistic thought. Academic panic has set in. But it was so, I mean, trying to offer a lifeboat in this storm. I mean, if you were a young person now setting out on an academic career, what would you want to have? What would be the essential survival kit for, you know, it used to be a monograph and a couple of good referees. What, what do you need now in terms of a career in conventional teaching and research academia to start with? Or is that not the question to well, ask? Well, yeah, it's... I... I mean, the future of the monograph itself, of course, is a, is a, a, very, a, a very interesting subject. I mean, well, um, that book I um, edited um, f f for Bloomsbury called The Public Value of the Humanities mm. used this model of um, uh, the book being available for free online under a Creative Commons licence, but also being um, available to buy as a, as a, as a print book. And it, it seems to me the, you know, the future of monograph publishing is in that 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 area of online and print-on-demand. Um, because until that model emerged, and there's still, I think, a way to go till it's, it's fully formed, but it, until it emerged, uh, the, the monograph looked like it was in terminal decline. I mean, mm. if you look at print runs of you know, OUP or you know, Harvard University Press monographs, again, they've had, been on an absolute downward spiral. Um, so there, there is no doubt that a substantial piece of scholarly work is the bedrock of any future academic's career. The advantage, of course, of it sort of migrating more online is it doesn't necessarily have to be a monograph of 80,000 words um, because I, I think there are quite a lot of interesting, um, predominantly electronic publishing models emerging now that recognise that the scholarly journal article of 7,000 words and the monograph of 80,000 words are very restrictive forms, that there's certain kinds of discovery, certain kinds of work um, that actually are best communicated at the length of 20, 40 60,000 words, something, something in between, which was never economically viable in, in print publishing. Um, but they might that, also be performances, perhaps. Well, I mean, that, that's the other thing I was going to say. That I think the, 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 there's no doubt that j just as, you know, for, for anybody going into the, 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 the creative industries and many, many other aspects of, 
um, the, the workplace um, in, in the future. Having a kind of um, a flexibility of approach, an ability to present or sell yourselves in, in different ways, is, 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 is going to be a huge, a huge virtue. The, f- the fact that the you know, forms of distribution are changing so rapidly means that the, you know, the people who will win, uh, or at least the people who will survive, I'm not sure if any of us will win, but the people who will survive are those who are, who are sufficiently flexible. I mean, my, so I'm not going to embarrass my former PhD student, Pete Cohen, who's sitting at the back, um, who you know, was, uh, has managed to get himself at a remarkably young age into a permanent lectureship. And that's primarily because of the quality of his scholarship, of course. But he also established himself as one of the world's most prominent bloggers of Shakespearean performance. And um, he'll be talking about this in, in, in the next session. And, and Pete wasn't doing this consciously. He, he got into the blog as a form. He's, he happens to be a good theatre reviewer. And people, are re- people were really interested to read his blog of the, um, of the great year when the RSC did all Shakespeare's plays. But almost by serendipity, he, he kind of proved his, 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 his variety. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons that... Um, you know, he, he, he's, he's managed to uh, get that precious thing, a, a permanent job. Um, I, was, I was mentioning, on, on the way in, I said, uh, I was sort of thinking about different media. I mean, the two things I'm doing at the moment um, are in forms that I've never worked in before. I, I thought a year or so ago um, that I probably had just about done enough with Shakespeare. Um, and having curated the British Museum exhibition last summer and had Simon Callow do the one-man play. I thought, well, if you've, if you've done a West End play in a British Museum exhibition, there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's eat for Shakespeare. I'll do some other things. But, but actually, I've, I've had two requests that have proved rather irresistible that I'm working on at the moment. One is a MOOC and the other is an app. Uh, the MOOC is um, coming out of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. And uh, I mean, the, there's, there's no doubt the MOOC is a very, very challenging phenomenon. Not for a university like Oxford, where the tutorial system, the one-to-one contact, will always be the, the gold standard of that form of education. But I can't see the university lecture, uh, the, the lecturer standing up at half past nine in the morning in a dusty lecture theatre um, with a PowerPoint presentation uh, at a thousand different universities around the world. I can't, I can't really see that surviving um, the, the advent of massive online courses. Um, and the possibilities you you have you, using digital forms to to deliver um, the equivalent of a, a lecture, I, th- I think, are very very exciting. Although I say it's no substitute for small group teaching, one on one work, and feedback, and so on. Um, but the thing I'm really excited about is a, is is the app. Um, the there's a company called Heuristic Media, um, who have had the idea of doing um, a Shakespeare app aimed at the iPad, and particularly aimed at um, a secondary school audience um, and we've, we've, um, we've just made The Tempest as a, um, a pilot for it uh, and it's, I think it is a completely new model of how you present Shakespeare it's, it's kind of a cross between um, an e-book and an audio book but with video so the, what happens on you, you hold up your, your iPad and at the top you get head and shoulders of the actor speaking the lines directly to camera and then below it the text scrolls and as the actor speaks the line the text lights up um, then if you turn it horizontally you get the text coming down here and the, the commentary the glossary the explanation of difficult words down there and then at various points you can click through 
into um, images, text, um, video material, giving you sort of stage history, context, and so on. Um, but the extraordinary thing about it, look at, looking at the, um, the, the sample one we've done, is that there's, there's something about the experience of having really, really good actors speaking the text aloud to you while you can actually see it that means you don't actually need to turn it sideways and get the glossary. It, it makes complete sense. You know, there have, there have always been, well, always, but since the 1950s, there have been um, recordings, audiobook Shakespeare. That, um, uh, you, can, you can watch DVDs of, produ of, of productions. This, this, is, this isn't intended to be a production. It's not a staging. It's a, almost like a, a, it's almost like a sort of, as, as it were, a concert version of an opera, the, mo the mode of performance, but with the text as well. Um, and I I. I this, this is absolutely thrilling. This is a way of um, making Shakespeare just make sense and be alive to a classroom of 16-year-olds, um, purely made possible by the technology. So what, you know, because as it were, what's the research content there? Um, I mean, there's, a, there's research content in the software design. Um, there's a kind of innovation concept um, in, in, in the idea for, for, for the app. Um, and potentially, uh, in terms of the, the idea of um, you know economic impact, I mean potentially it it it, it could be massive. I mean the uh, um, and also the dialogue with the actor over the over the text, presumably. I mean that's yeah. research. I mean that's an underrated well, that's a very element of research. Yeah, I yeah. I mean Ian McKellen's done Prospero for us for this first one, and um, one of the things he he he, he says in there's a little promo video we're doing at the moment, and one of the things he says in his interview there actually is, um, the thing about actors is they have to think very hard about what the words mean and how best to speak them. Um, and actually it can help a student in their reading simply to have got the, 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 the benefit of the, the actor's thought. But that's completely intangible in a way, I mean, immeasurable. And, of course that, and that's a big, the big problem, the big question mark about the whole... Um, impact agenda mm. is this business of measurability I mean, um, because crude forms of measurement um, you know, are very um, very very questionable here but, I mean that takes us back to something that was said this morning which is the human element is the crucial thing I mean, mm. you know mm. impact when you see it mm. but the system has to trust yeah. the people yeah. to say this is yes. effective this is what we understand by impact in English yes. literature and it's not the yeah. same as chemistry and no that's right. We can tell you what yeah. it is if you want to know, but yes. you'll have to trust us. Yeah, well, I mean, but to, I mean, to be fair to our paymasters, you know, they, they do still trust the system of, mm. of, of, of peer, peer review. And my, well, you and I have both sat on the last RAE panel, and uh, yeah, you're on the ref panel? Well, I'm not sentenced. But what's very striking about those exercises is that although, you know, there is this kind of rigorous template sort of laid down by, by Hefke, the, the, the reality is precisely mm -hmm. the, 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 the human element. The, um, the, the, the people on those panels are always looking to reward where they can, um, are always looking to interpret the rules creatively mm -hmm. in order to encourage um, the best and most creative approaches. And um, there's a sort of pragmatic recognition that you've got to fill in the, you've got to fill mm -hmm. in the boxes because in the end the money has to be given out. Um, it's the interface it's between the real and the system, isn't it? It's yeah. provided by yeah. the, the peer review. We've got two minutes left, so we must offer a chance for questions. Uh, I fear we're going to have to stop, because we have to change the furniture for the next session in four minutes. But uh, can I thank you very much and That's encourage good. everyone to thank 
Jonathan Bate for a really interesting tour through ways of engaging the public. Thank you.